Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian grace-infused, and we like to think cosmopolitan-ish guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to talk about the contents of Another Weekend's, but we will not be doing it remotely. We will all be together in Tyler, Texas, recording live before a studio audience, or at least live to tape, so you'll hear maybe a few voices from the crowd. But first, I'm just as excited about a conversation I had this week with Melissa Phoebos. She's the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, Whip Smart, and most recently, Abandoned Me, which is about the intense bonds of love and the need for connection with family, lovers, and yourself. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Melissa Phoebos. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. And you've written uh, a pretty amazing book, uh, Abandon Me. And this is your second book. Mm-hmm. And in it, you say, this is uh, towards the, kind of the middle of the book, you're talking about Carl Jung and nervous breakdowns. And you said, Jung was not a victim of his own repressed psyche. He made a choice to yield to it. He was that he knew that exiling oneself to the desert of one's own mind was a necessary kind of madness. It precluded nervous breakdown. Young wanted to teach people about the self, and he knew that he had to face the darkest parts of his own. If he wanted to show anyone it could be done, and then you say, I was no Carl Young. I was a 32-year-old writer in a long-distance relationship who spent too much time on Facebook. <laughs> But I also knew that having gone to the darkest places of myself and come and come back, that having written that story was the most useful thing I'd ever done. Why, why was it the most useful thing? I mean, first of all, can I just say thank you? Um, there's something, I don't hear my own voice in my head when I write and hearing someone else read my, it sounds pretty good. It's, I mean, if I'm allowed to say that, I was like, oh, She's pretty smart. She's like moving between like high and low registers like pretty smoothly there. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, they, I, by, I, at one time, uh, the president of Princeton Seminary, Tom Gillespie, a blessed memory, said uh, somebody asked him, because he had a PhD in New Testament. They said, can you speak German? And he said, no, but I can read the hell out of it. And so not <laughs> only can you speak English, but you can write the hell out of it. I mean, it's appropriate that you're teaching English because your prose is... Just gorgeous. It's elegant and it's fun. Oh, and it's, Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, okay, back to your question. So, you know, when I said that in the book, I was talking about my first book, you know, and sort of being in the midst of this incredibly tumultuous, I mean, that's a that's a soft word for what it was, you know, torturous might be more accurate, but I was in the middle of this maelstrom of experience that I write about in Abandon Me and it was really comforting and confirming and sort of bracing for me to remember both that Jung had, you know, 
forayed into very dark places in his own mind and found, you know, he called it the numinous beginning. It's like where all Mm -hmm. of the rest of his work came from. And as a writer, that resonated for me, but also this experience that I'd had writing and publishing my first book, which was about different, but, you know, equally dark topics that make people uncomfortable and made me uncomfortable to examine and write about. And I had published that book in some state of terror about how people were going to respond to it or what the what that exposure was going to feel like to me and what i met was this incredible surge of gratitude from total strangers who had read my story and then wrote me these emails i mean thank god that we live in the future and um they could find me, but I got so many letters and emails and Facebook messages from total strangers who said, I didn't even know what a dominatrix was. I'm not a heroin addict, but this book made me feel less alone. And, you know, my definition of a useful life mostly has to do with being of service to other people um, and, and exactly that sort of interaction. And that's exactly the interaction that I had with books that made me want to be a writer, which is that I felt catastrophically alone or I feared being catastrophically alone with my own human experience uh, and I couldn't put words to it. And then I found writers who did and that's part of how I survived, you know? So I thought, okay, if that terrifying, confounding experience ended up being a thing that I could perform this kind of creative alchemy on and help other people, then maybe, maybe this also torturous, excoriating emotional experience, um, will be the same on one level right like there's a truth to identity politics right like i mean that helps us sort out how the diverse nature of the human right experience and yet really there is kind of one human story on Mm -hmm. some other level right so i guess you if you mine your story in its particularity right Mm -hmm. if you're really attentive to it it's that's where it starts to speak universally even if somebody hasn't had any of these kinds of experiences right i mean Exactly. I mean, that's the thing that I harp on most often in my classes. You know, I teach creative writing, but really, I feel like I teach compassion. And literature is the best device for engaging our compassionate parts, I think. Um, Because I write about experiences that most people aren't going to relate to in the specificities, but everybody eventually has an experience of heartbreak or grief or shame or um, hiding and wishing to be found or loneliness, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting. You talk early in the book about you and your brother and your father, the captain who was gone a lot uh, and at sea as a sea captain. Mm -hmm. And you talked about the refuge in stories. Right. And there's this one line where you say, you talk about the velveteen rabbit and when this boy contracts scarlet fever the rabbit is stuffed into a sack of things to be burned you say my heart broke with the rabbits to be found unlovable was a kind of death the child's animal wisdom knows they are tantamount the rabbit's despair is so great that he cries a real tear summoning the nursery fairy who finally makes him real Mm -hmm. can you can you say more about your connection to the rabbit to the velveteen rabbit that was one of my favorite books when I was a kid. And you know, a friend recently said to me that that would be a good 
test that parents could give their children to find out if they were going to be artists or writers, like give them the Velveteen Rabbit. And if they're still talking about it a week later, you're in trouble. <laughs> um, you know, the kid's like, going to have no earning potential. Yeah. Today. I mean, that was a thing in my family, the idea of real, which in the Velveteen Rabbit is defined as when, you know, a stuffed animal or analogously anything is so well loved that it becomes broken in by love and it becomes what they call real, right? And, you know, I related to that rabbit because he was afraid he wasn't real and he was afraid that without receiving a certain kind of love, he would cease to exist or would cease to have value as a creature. And I think that at its most, its deepest layer of bedrock sort of our craving for love, our wish to have our needs met by other people is infused with that fear, right? And so for me as a kid, my dad was always leaving and I, you know, I didn't have the emotional architecture to understand about jobs, you know, or object permanence maybe. Um, And so it seemed like a kind of threat and also a test. Like if I can get this person to stay and love me, then maybe I will be worthy and maybe I will survive. And if I can't, then maybe I'm not and maybe I won't, you know? And I think now as an adult and as an adult writer who's, you know, rigorously examined these things, I also relate to the rabbit because it's that very, you know, it's sort of like the the pinnacle of that feeling of that fear, like touching it. And it's so hot like it's so tender that place in us that that believes that we need love to survive it's that very moment that makes the rabbit real right like that tear he cries it's like he touches the most tender part inside of him his his place of greatest fear and that's what makes him real and i think on some level even before i could articulate that i understood the moral that to feel your own sadness and your fear makes you more human and that that's a good thing, that that's what draws love to you, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is there a sense in which like certain experiences of shame or objectification or something like actually reverse the process where you go back to stuffed animalness? Yeah. I mean, I think, okay, so if, you know, if like integration or emotional presence or, you know, just like being in touch with your feelings, you know, however you want to say it, if that is, is a motion towards being more human and to being more capable of both giving and receiving love, then I think it at the other end of that scale is absolutely objectification and shame because those objectification is just distance, right? That's all it is. It's like a a far enough distance to see the shape of something from the outside and shame. I think of, I always think of shame and this analogy comes up in my work a lot when I tried to describe it as sort of like a coating or a shellac. It's like a thing. It's sort of like a greasy (laughs) something that you paint over yourself to seal it in or to seal out other things, but it, but it functions as a kind of barrier, right? It keeps us Mm. from parts of ourselves and from other people. And yeah, I think it creates distance. So it really is sort of the opposite and it isolates and exiles parts of ourselves so that we can't be fully integrated. We can't give access to other people. Yeah. I think it was Brene Brown say that shame, everybody's got it. And the less you talk about it, the more you have. Like the more you generate, like that's just, it's just a, 
And you say yeah. in the book, and I think you, you talk about this in your TED Talk, right, a little bit, like you say that when you struggle with addiction, your constant move was, like the, the instinct move was to secrecy. Mm-hmm. And now your gut move, your first instinct is to try to move towards confession. Right, right. Why, why, why is that? Like what, where, what, what freedom have you found in that switching of dance steps? I don't know that there's any kind of freedom that I enjoy that hasn't come as a result of that dance step. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, also I'm having so many thoughts right now. They're bottlenecking in my head because you said so many good things, but you know, I used to have this quote from Brene Brown that was on a post-it tacked over my desk. And I'm really lamenting that I, I sort of did a cleanup and it's not there, but it's something to the effect. And I'm going to butcher this, that, you know, our willingness, our capacity for love or happiness is, corresponds exactly to our willingness to be brokenhearted, you know? And, you know, so I think like in order to have your heart broken and whether that means shattered or open to let other things in, often I think it's the same thing. We have to expose ourselves to other people and secrecy prevents us from doing that, right? It's a protective instinct, but it's an isolating instinct. When I was a kid, my grandmother had this tiny, feisty little Puerto Rican grandmother who was very, very Catholic. And occasionally she would take me to church with her. And I loved it. I would actually contrive to go to Catholic mass with friends of mine who had church going families. And you know, there was, there's a lot to unpack there, but the point being that I was obsessed with confession. I so desperately wanted to go in the little booth and tell everything to a faceless stranger who would not gasp um, or have hurt feelings or that whom I wouldn't have to take care of in any way that I could just unburden, right? And I think that that's a really natural instinct, right? Like that's how we get close to other people. That's how we're seen. And we can't be loved or accepted or mirrored if we're not seen by other people, you know, so that step is a really painful one to step toward people instead of further inside yourself. But I've been no lesson has ever been clearer for me. I had some very, very clear lessons in my young adulthood when I took that risk for the first time where there was just no way of seeing any other kind of truth than that of the potential of that act and how mm. freeing it would be and how much closer it would bring me to other people. You know, the thing I most feared was, was the only way to get what I desperately needed. Do, do you feel like, I mean, you write, you write some about your experience as a dominatrix while you're, you know, you've got a heroin habit, you find this ad, you, you respond to it. Do you find that people, some of the clients you worked with, that they were seeking a confessional? Like, I mean, they're probably, on one level, they're keeping a secret, many of them, I'm sure. And another level, it probably feels like they're in the confessional. I would go uh, so far as to say, without exception. I mean, I think that secrecy and a hunger for confession always go together. You know, they are they are the two poles of one thing, right? And I don't think you can sort of occupy a certain extreme without your psyche wanting to balance it out on the other side. And, you know, like Carl Jung, to come back to that guy, um, described addiction as a low-level spiritual quest. And I would sort of expand that to say that sort of all 
all a lot of the behaviors that we describe as addictive or compulsive or self-destructive can also be seen as that as sort of a possibly misguided wish for self-soothing for comfort or a low-level spiritual quest and i think my clients were marked by the exact same sort of instinct for secrecy and wish for closeness and connection um and sort of you know, we're experiencing the same kind of isolation that I was, even though it was very important for me to differentiate myself in my own mind from them. We had a lot, we had a lot in common. I mean, many of my sessions as a dominatrix were just, you know, talk therapy. Mm -hmm. Do you say in, in the part, in the section earlier in the book where you talk about, you do talk about your grandmother and Catholic faith and, and you talk about how the Jesus prayer, the Jesus name didn't do much for you, but the prayer itself for mercy mm -hmm. Yeah, did and that that was really compelling. And you prayed it a lot, just a generic plea for mercy. What was why was that so compelling? The word, the posture, like the petition, what what in it was right. was so compelling. I mean, I just even now, like hearing you say it, like the word mercy, just does like it undoes something in me that is good to be undone, <laughs> you know. Um, and I think as a very young person as a child, I think I, I adopted wholesale very early, uh, an allegiance to self-sufficiency and my own agency. And it just seemed safer as a human being in the world and in my family and as a female to just be the boss, right? To be my own higher power, to be the director, to not ask anything of anyone else unless I absolutely needed to. And there was a lot of comfort and empowerment in that, but it was so terrifying and lonely in another way, right? Because no child is equipped to play God, <laughs> even in their own mind, right? Um, and so I think in the word mercy, inherent in it is a belief that there's something greater than yourself, right? That there is something else that is merciful that is that is loving and has power over you you know and so just that act of of asking for help or you know supplication or even like the act of 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 prayer like i i used to play at prayer when i was a kid even though i didn't have any you know spiritual belief system i just it felt good to me you know and i think that's it was like this one place, maybe in language or just alone in my bedroom, where I could enact um, my humanness and, and, and acknowledge that I couldn't control everything, right? And that I needed help and that I wanted it, even if I couldn't ask the other humans. Yeah. Is that, isn't, is that part of the irony of like so much of, oh, I was going to say modern life, but I mean, I, I don't know, maybe it's perennial, like you, you want to appear like I, I think about <laughs> I think about you right I mean a lot of this is a love story we t mm -hmm. I, I like to talk a little bit about that but it, but so often I think of like what what's the average dating courtship like in, today you know <laughs> in, in so what you're trying to do is convince somebody that you don't need to depend on them so that you can so that finally when they buy the ruse and <laughs> love and, and, and give you your affection, then you can drop the ruse and really depend on them. It's this kind of it's catch 22. Yeah, yeah, it's all a hustle. All it is just, all a hustle. We're all grifters in love. I don't think it's possible to avoid that, you know? Um, I mean, I think that the example I, I illustrate in the book is a pretty extreme example that partly came as a result of the 
sort of psychic map that I just described for you. You know, I think if you, I mean, humans are dependent on other humans. That's factual, especially in childhood. But because I sort of um, truncated that experience and cut myself off from being dependent on other people, I don't think that that instinct went away. And in fact, I think it was um, preserved and, and as that of a very young person. And so when I finally you know, exhausted my own independence in relationships and decided to sort of let that part of myself out, it was so incredibly intense. And I wanted from this one person all of the things I could never ask my parents or the adults in my life or God for, which is a lot to ask <laughs> of a human being. Yeah, and you're, you're parable. I mean, you talk a lot about being a child shaped by stories and one of the central sort of parables, or it seems like, or, or the kind of, it, for you that narrates that process, right, is, is the film The Labyrinth. Mm. David Bowie. <laughs> Are you familiar with this film? I'm, I, I, I am. I, I, if you could see my, my I have like a, a picture of Thomas Merton, then a bobblehead of Pope Francis, some icons, and then I have this notebook my wife gave me, which is an artistic rendition of David Bowie. So it's like, I, I like the film. Yes. I like David Bowie. So it's very, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, it was a seminal text of my childhood. And, you know, I would also argue of my generation, of a certain demographic of my generation. You know, and I I also, uh, we, we didn't really watch TV. You know, my family was, I was raised vegetarian. My mother's a super feminist. My dad's a sea captain. She's um, a psychotherapist too, your mom, She's right? a psychotherapist. She's a Buddhist bisexual feminist psychotherapist she's a very cool lady she was not like other moms and i'm so grateful for that but we didn't she's have to, tough she was yeah. tough for a pollster in a focus group yes like where do you put her yeah yeah, yeah. she's not your ideal focus group participant she's not she's an outlier um but so we had we had this like small collection of vhs tapes that someone had given us for a trip and my brother and I basically just watched those over and over and over again in lieu of actual television like the other children were watching. But Labyrinth was by far our favorite. So I just watched it over and over and over, probably the same way that other people like read the Bible in Sunday school or watched, you know, Family Ties or whatever other people were watching. I just watched Labyrinth again and again and again. So it's, I mean, I think we're all children of stories. We're all created by stories. That's how, that is the first and most long-standing way that we learn to make sense of human experience, right? And and particularly the, the the texts that are the first ones are the most formative, right? Because those are the stories that we first sort of project our own experience onto. And so Labyrinth is definitely one of those for me. When was the last time you watched it? I watched it in the summer of 2015, 2014, when I was drafting that essay. I rewatched it. Is it, you know, it, it's part of the challenge of like, I don't know if we call it postmodern culture, late modern culture, however you want to, whatever mm -hmm. kind of taxonomy you want to use. But is the challenge that like, it is tough because in most pre-modern cultures, there were agreed upon texts or narratives or stories that, mm -hmm. that we could hold in common. And this is what it means to be a man or a woman, mm -hmm. or this is what death, life and death and mm -hmm. love and mm -hmm. valor or all mm -hmm. these things mean. And so it, it's almost like now you're, you're thrust even if you're in a religious community or something you're in a pluralistic society where there's a bunch of religious texts 
that, yeah. that at least are are, are mm-hmm. seen as legitimate, if only for this community or something. Is that part of the thing? Like, is, is someone who teaches undergrads, is this like the struggle for people coming into college? Like, hey, I, I've yeah. got to make up more than yep. a lot of generations did on my own. Yeah, it's true. And I think, oh, God, I have so many thoughts about this right now. Um, We've got lots of time. I think... Um, <laughs> On one hand, it's great, right? We can choose our own texts. We can call them our religious texts if we want. You know, you can call like graphic novels your religious texts if you want, like that kind of freedom and access. Like we have such a tremendous access to things. Um, But on the other hand, I think it makes it so much easier to pretend that all of our texts are different and are um, in conflict when they're not if that makes sense. And so all of that and sort of like that tension really informs the way that I teach my students. And it also informs my focus on personal narrative, because I think personal narrative and what we were talking about before, it it gives you access to the universality in a way that humans tend to avoid. You know, we when we don't understand something or it's strange, we sort of um, have a knee-jerk opposition to it. And my students certainly do. When something is strange, not like their experience confounds them or makes them feel dumb, they, they don't like it, right? They don't think it's good. Um, and so a big part of what I teach, maybe the main thing that I teach is is to resist that knee-jerk opposition and to move into something and look for the parts that you do identify with so that we can have all of our myriad texts, but we can also have the capacity to see how they factor down to very, very common denominators. The same way that, you know, I remember being a kid and reading, I was an insane sort of addictive reader reading I'd like sometimes I think about the things I read when I was a kid and I was like, what did I even understand of that? But I do remember sort of the realization that at the base of all of the texts I loved was the same thing, right? Like spiritual texts, novels. Um, it had a lot to do with like love and mercy and connection with other humans and this integration of sort of the spiritual and corporeal and intellectual and emotional, right? That they all had this message that there was enough room for all of it and that it was all connected. Do you feel like the word narrative has kind of gotten hijacked in that now, mm-hmm. like, you know, that every day on cable news, that's where you, well, they've mm-hmm. got to get control of the narrative or they, which really, it's almost synonymous with bullshit. <laughs> like, exactly. Like, like basically they've got, they're not bullshitting enough. They got to create something. That's, so like, but what you're saying is almost like the, the way it sounds like you're asking people to delve into their story. It's like kind of the opposite of the way it's used in, on, you know, in popular news, because you're, you're actually talking about something that, like, like it sounds like giving up control mm-hmm. of the flow of it to sort of receive it and understand it, as opposed to trying to control it and fr- and make a front and right. and something that Merton says, you know, you want to you're you're freest when you're when you're being yourself, not seeing yourself. Exactly. I mean, that echoes. Um, I talk about this in the book too. John Berger, who in ways of seeing talks about, you know, he's specifically talking about visual art and and women and how how we're conditioned to only look at ourselves through the eyes of other people and therefore never actually get to just be, right? Um, and I also think that, you know, that kind of language about controlling the narrative is also this this way of acting as if there's one narrative to control. It's trying to scoop everything into one narrative, which is such a 
impossible and dangerous thing to do. And so I think by encouraging students and hopefully encouraging people with my own work to just go into their own narrative, you know, all of these human experiences and stories can sort of unspool in a more organic way. And the um, parallels between them will just be there, you know? I mean, I think I talk about this a lot when I draw plot graphs. I draw a lot of plot graphs in my classes and just talk about how sort of that arc, our sort of search for redemption and all the ways we're thwarted and what resolution is and how our lives are naturally sort of organized into that structure, you know? And if we sort of just relax the structure of your own stories becomes clear, right? But if you're trying to impose a cultural narrative or a news narrative or someone else is trying to impose a narrative onto it, becomes impossible to see the wisdom that's inherent in it and the similarity that are inherent in our stories. I'm going to ask uh, Melissa to read from her book right now. Would you read something for us? I would. I would. Okay. Um, maybe since you mentioned the part about um, the Jesus prayer, I'm going to read a little bit from that. I learned the magic of repetition from Salinger's Franny and Zoe, which I found on a thrift store shelf filmed with dust. I studied it as Franny Glass studied the way of the pilgrim, mesmerized by the idea of incessant prayer. Like me, Franny encanted a set of words, the Jesus prayer, hoping to syncopate their intention with her heart's beat, the surge of her blood, turn even the mysterious work of her organs holy. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, goes the prayer. Jesus was a cool guy, the captain said, but religion was not. The nuns who swung wooden yardsticks against him and his brothers were not. My abuela told them to be good, to pray, to beg the help of no one but God. My abuelo had beaten them senseless. Help never came. So praying to Jesus was not for anyone in our family, but I loved the word mercy. The idea of falling to one's knees moved something in me that I tended like a secret. So I left out Jesus, have mercy on me, under my breath, on the way to school, in the ripped back seat of a white Subaru with a hand up my shirt, I waited to detach from the definition of my daily life, to feel the blooming quiet of something holier. Even those ancient monks, writers of the Philokalia, believed that the repetition of words and willingness was all one needed. Faith could be summoned in the self, in the saying, in the body. One didn't need to believe in God to walk toward God. I only had to believe in a word, so I started looking for it. That's incredibly beautiful. Thank you. Part of what I think is great about your book is it's this kind of seamless style. I mean, there... It's a memoir. <laughs> you talk about literature. You talk about your own life in, in, in a way that doesn't feel disjointed. It, it, it feels like very seamless. What you're writing. And at the heart of it, it's a love story. And, it, and you're talking about it, the abandonment issues as a kid you had. And, and that ultimately led to a deep but painful love affair. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. how, 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 are, how is your heart <laughs> been? I mean, how are you... <laughs> Like, have you, I mean, I mean, I don't want to spoil alert the book and everybody, all of our listeners, please read this book. This is, this is a book that you want to read. It's, it's incredibly powerful. And the, again, the prose is, uh, it's, it's easy on the ears or the mind or whatever. Um, <laughs> but how, how is the experience of lost love? Could you say a little bit about yeah. for our listeners that the, the love story and, and if, you know, have, have you found healing mm. in the wake of, of, of lost love? I mean, the short answer is yes. I think I have found healing. And I don't know, I kind of want to um, 
clarify like because I do think it's a love story, but it's not a love story the way that um you know Casablanca is a love story or it's like a story about what love is, you know, and and it's not a romanticized version. It details romanticization. Um it's a story about, you know, what we do in our quest for what we call love, which I really think is sort of alternately true connection with other human beings and also a wish for emotional redemption that comes from, you know, our childhoods, our personalities, and even a, a, a much further back history. That's, that's also part of our legacy, you know? So, um, if we're lucky, I think that love is always healing no matter how it ends. And hmm. my hmm. heart, my heart has been busted open a few times, but, but most so as a result of the affair that I describe in this book. Um, and it's so much bigger now, you know, it's like, it hurts to be expanded and love if we let it does that. You want you wind up when you meet, John, he's he's married to a woman who th- was a churchgoer, and you talk about I think going to church with them, mm. and and there's this sermon being preached on the book of Jonah, mm-hmm. and um, you write there that in reflecting on the sermon, Jonah, whose name means dove, is not brave. He simply exhausts all his other choices. The only thing left to choose is God's will. And even then, after proclaiming his prophecy, Jonah shakes his fist at the Lord. His destiny does not give him peace. It enrages him. Mm. It's not what he wants. He begs God to kill him. But God doesn't kill Jonah. God's mercy often doesn't come in the form of erasure. And the story of Jonah seems a parable of what I have often suspected, that life is a great choose-your-own-adventure story. Every choice leads the hero to the same princes, the same cliff. There are alternative routes, but there is only one ending if you make it there. And you said, I already knew that Amaya, your lover, was God's storm, that every love is a sea monster in whose belly we learn to pray. Hmm. That's beautiful. It's beautiful. I stand by it. I still think that's true. You know, and that's what I mean, like, about stories being factored down to the same lessons, right? Like all of the Bible stories, all of my essays, they factor down to the same, to the same bone, you know, of truth, which is that there's no escape. (laughs) There's no escape. There's mercy, right? But you can't opt out. Um, And, and usual, usually mercy has to do with facing something instead of turning away from it, right? Like that's what God or our higher selves or the people who really love us want for us, because that's where, that's where relief actually is. Yeah. In the real, Mm -hmm. and not with the reality we'd like Mm -hmm. it to be, but, but in, in reality. Yeah. Yeah. Like we want to, run away. We want to escape things. We want to avoid conflict and vulnerability and sadness and anger. But we don't really want to do those things because what we really want is to feel safe and connected and purposeful um, and alive, right? And that those feelings never come from avoidance. I recently taught this Raymond Carver, this well-known short story called Cathedral, where you know, there's this really sort of like fearful, small-minded narrator. Um, and 
anyway, I'm going to skip over most of the plot, but at the end, he's like drawing a picture of a cathedral and it's like this, this metaphor for letting go, right? For taking an emotional risk and just being human and being compassionate um, for himself and other people. And he describes it in the end. He says it, it didn't feel like I was inside our house. It didn't feel like I was inside anything. And, and that to me is like this incredible metaphor, you know, like we're always building these little structures um, to try to feel safe when actually like not being inside anything is the safest place where you have access to the full range of your human experience in your own heart. Hmm. Melissa, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. And the book is Abandoned Me and it's stellar. Uh, thank you for writing it. Thank you so much for reading it and for talking to me. So Good day, David. Good day, Sarah. And good day to uh, the crowd here at Tyler, Texas. Ember 2017, the first time we've recorded the podcast before a live studio audience. Thank you for being here, gang. <laughs> All right. I need a laugh track, <laughs> applause track like Letterman. So, 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 folks, here we are. We'll be here all weekend. And if you're in the sound of my voice and you're around Texas, come and hang out with us. But, Sarah, I just want to ask, like, I've spent about 24 hours now with you for the second time. What kind of house guest am I? Um, you would be such a good nanny, like a live-in nanny. <laughs> that's, a, that's an answer. Yeah. He played Candyland with our kindergartner at like 6 o'clock Six this morning. morning. I was up, but I heard this little knock, 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 knock. Mr. Scott, can we play Candyland? <laughs> it's set up. <laughs> it's already he set beat up. Me. Although he deals from the middle of the deck. He does. Literally. He cheats. He, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he for sure cheats. Yeah. yeah. And Annie, your youngest, does not mind. She, no. She does not mind being cheated. As long as she gets a seat at the <laughs> table. She gets to be at the party. She's yeah. Silver medal is fine for her. Yeah. Absolutely. And then we did some shopping together. Mm-hmm. So We've been to Target twice. Dave, do you feel like we had we bonded? I feel like it's just, that's why I put you two closer together. In the yeah, I feel like I'm a third wheel here. We or can go fifth to target wheel. later if you want. And Sarah told me that one of the things that we should talk about more is celebrity gossip, and she filled me in on something that I did not know that that Prince William William and his wife Kate Kate do not hold hands. Right, they ever. don't hold hands. Did you guys have you guys heard this? Do you know they that? don't hold hands in public. Yeah, ever. Yeah, because why did I tell you they don't hold hands? Because Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip never held hands in public. And so that was That's the, their model. Yeah. 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 So there you go. That's the only That's celebrity. it? It's, That's a very, it's a very Anglican celebrity gossip. <laughs> it feels we appropriate. We only do Church of England exactly. celebrity gossip. Exactly. If people That's, could see it, I guess so they will no see it. no Kardashians. Yeah. No Kardashians. Yeah. Absolutely no. No Beavers here. We yeah. have no Believers here, everybody. No It definitely fits the, the tapestries on the wall. Do you, do, you hold, do you hold your spouse's hands much in public, both of you? PDA. What are to some? be honest with you, we so when we were newly married, we were in New York City, and my husband's an Episcopal priest, and he wore 
you know, the very traditional all black with the collar. And we never held hands because when we did, he lo- people would think he was a Catholic priest and it was like weird. Like you were his girlfriend? Yeah. Like a no strings <laughs> attached relationship? We kind of, that kind of set our tone. So, and now we've got kids. So we're not like, we're like holding sippy cups. Yeah. Do you huh. guys hold hands in public? Occasionally. I, yeah. I was told early on in order to short, short circuit sort of my neediness never to reach out for kate's hand always let her reach out for me and because i I'd, I'd done that wrong so many times before and come, uh-huh. come on too strong and um i think maybe i've just taken that into marriage mm. however right. you right. know i'm always excited when there's a little bit of physical affection <laughs> just a little bit <laughs> our kids are to the point where they like saying gross right, right, right stop right. kissing you know yeah. so yeah anyway yeah really exciting right. stuff well, there you go there you all know more than you wanted to know yep. about david and sarah and yeah. past impressions that people on the street thought when your husband's dressed as a priest and so let's move to a serious piece of theology here the first thing Highlight from another week ends. We have a piece here, right, David? Yeah. Uh, about uh, highlighting the theology of Fleming Rutledge, who is going to be a guest in our New York conference speaker. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Her book, The Crucifixion, uh, I think, uh, I mean, I'd heard about it from other people, but Sarah, you were the first person to really say, read this now. And it's like the rest of the kind of blogosphere and the rest of the world's been catching on. In fact, I was talking to a guy in Charlottesville who works at just um, a church that's not really one that I interact with very often. He's like, you have Fleming Rutledge coming to your mm. thing. I don't think he'd ever read a book of hers or knew who she was, but this book, Christianity Today, named it the book of the year. Um, anyway, this is uh, was posted earlier this week by Andrew Wilson uh, for, I think it's called Think Theology. It's a UK uh, blog. And it's about substitution in the church fathers. Now, it was the people who've read this book know that one of the unexpected things that Fleming Rutledge is doing in her book, The Crucifixion, is she's kind of rehabilitating the idea of substitutionary atonement, which has really fallen out of uh, favor in, you know, uh, certainly the seminary you went to and a lot mm-hmm. of mainline traditions that mm-hmm. kind of talk about it as you hear the, the, the hackneyed phrase, cosmic child abuse. It's, it's kind of, it, it, it's a little bit, um, well, we'll talk about it right now. This is what uh, Andrew Wilson says. It says, Jesus died as our substitute, which argues Fleming Rutledge in her remarkable The Crucifixion, which is standard fare in evangelicalism, and, um, but given her Episcopalian background, academic context, and substitutionophobic audience, that's the first time I heard that word, <laughs> it is both interesting and very encouraging that Rutledge is there, too. Uh, yet, she points out, and as I experienced firsthand on Twitter only minutes before writing this post, that's Wilson speaking, the idea that substitution uh, was invented by... Yeah, Saint- I was like, David, you're not on Twitter. <laughs> like, you never did. Yeah, well... Um, but this, I've certainly heard what Wilson says is that people think that substitutionary atonement was invented by Anselm. Mm. And I think it was at the 10th century. What century was that, Scott? That was the 11th century. The 11th century. Or even the reformers. And that it continues to reappear in contemporary discussions like a bad smell. And so in her very kind and Episcopalian way, she goes in for a spot of debunking. She's interested, or what he's interested in this post, is how she's talked about the church fathers. Um uh, being, uh, having really talked about substitution in their own writings. And she, she lists a couple of quotes. Uh, he reproduces a bunch, but the two I want to read is the one by, uh, John Chrysostom, uh, you know, the, the great preacher and the one, the prayer that we say in the Book of Common Prayer. 
This is from him. He says, Christ has saved us by substituting himself in our place. <laughs> pretty, pretty cut and dry. Though he was righteousness itself, God allowed him to be condemned as a sinner and to die under a curse, transferring to him not only the death which we owed, but our guilt as well. Now that's, uh, you, you can't make it more clear than that. Uh, Jerome saying, uh, St. Jerome saying, Christ endured in our stead the penalty we ought to have suffered for our crimes. Now, these are very, um, you know, they're things that people maybe don't want to talk about, aren't excited to talk about, but it's there. And, you know, people in the pastoral ministry and in any kind of Christian context know that this idea of substitution to those who've really struggling with deep sincere guilt know that how incredibly uh, relieving this can be she uh fleming goes on to say a good deal of the opposition to substitute to the substitution motif is rooted in an aversion to its fundamental recognition of the rule of sin and god's judgment upon it now normally we do a sort of a light-hearted introductory segment and that's not this one but Mm -hmm. um where 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 did your mind go Candyland. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i uh i had a couple of thoughts i mean one i think that i can i play devil's advocate i will i'll advocate for the debt now um no i think that that you will be advocating for the devil if you're advocating against substitutionary I, yeah, exactly. time just for the record pleased to meet you, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, do, I do think it's fair to say that like for a, the the anselm is is somebody that thinks about it with depth and intention. And mm-hmm. so it's not that it's never in the church fathers, but this Paul Tillich, I think it's in his history of Christian theology. I think it's, the, or I think it's there. Maybe it's in the courage to be somewhere, but he says that basically there's three root human anxieties. So, and he thinks in the patristic period, the big fear is fear of death, mm-hmm. which is why like most of the long reflective uh, Christological and soteriological work is in the manger and the empty tomb. Since by the medieval period, there is the anxiety becomes about righteousness, guilt, measuring up, and so then you do get much more worked out theology of the cross. He thinks in the modern period, it's meaning and nihilism is mm-hmm. the, the, the anxiety about meaninglessness. And he says that we move to Galilee, you know, the, Jesus, the teacher, a prophet. And I think that there might be something to that. But what I, I do, a lot of people, though, I think, yeah, like your dad, Paul Zoll's book. Um, who will deliver us? His early book on the cross. I mean, he I think de- deals quite well with how actually it is the substitutionary stuff that speaks to anxiety, mm. and, and I think people underestimate the the continued relevance of that. And also, like every film where we see a vicarious substitute is is incredibly moving. And you know, so I think yeah. it's almost like one of those things where you have to like work hard to ignore it. But I think where people get hung up, and this is like where I think people struggle is instead of saying because god loves us christ died people in in certain reductions spheres of the church it winds up being said jesus had to die so god could love us like that where there's this kind of so so even calvin if you read calvin in first john he's like while wow, we were enemies he still died but, but then he's like but god had to be dis- disposed graciously before the cross or he wouldn't have sent the you know so i think that mm-hmm. on some level as long as the message stays that Jesus died because God loves us, not that there's sort of a conflict between the Father and the Son or something like that. Yeah. There you go. Sarah? I just, uh, you know, for me, this is just like the road to Emmaus is I find very comforting just in terms of how bad people's theology is now because (laughs) because those guys had... They had been with Jesus. I mean, we're talking about disciples here. And then undercover Jesus shows up, right? They don't know it's Jesus. 
and they're talking about Jesus, and they so they then try to explain Jesus to Jesus, and their explanation of him is, we were going to get this great prophet, and then he was this massive disappointment. So when I read this stuff that Fleming's saying, it's like, what's if we're not going to talk about the atonement, then what's the alternative? What What are we left with? We're left with Jesus who showed up to be a prophet and was a real disappointment. Like, I mean, we, we all seem to want to skip over that hard stuff. We all want to skip over the suffering on our behalf, both because suffering is really unpleasant and because then we have to admit to our own sin. So, I mean, I, you know. Do you think the two disciples in Emmaus Road were holding hands? No, I Because if they're a male and female, mm-hmm. they could have been a couple. Or in the Middle I East, don't. sometimes men will hold hands, so it's possible. It's, well, I don't Deep thoughts with the Deep thoughts. Mm-hmm. 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 All right, let's talk about being a billionaire and how hard it is. Yes. <laughs> Who will listen to a billionaire's troubles? This is the next article on the list by Eileen Zimmerman in the New York Times. Really fascinating article. And I think, um, you know, we, when we want to talk about the unromanticizable uh, person, although we... we from a Christian perspective, uh, this is really, you know, this is the opposite of the village in Africa that needs your sacrifice. Uh, you know, does God love billionaires too? Uh, but this is where uh, the article goes. It's really a profile of a guy named Brad Klontz who is not only a certified financial planner, but a psychologist to the uh, ultra-wealthy. And he says, as a society, we believe that the wealthy have no right to complain about their lives. We have little patience for that. But the truth is, the ultra-rich suffer from the same existential angst as anyone else. The difference between their angst and ours is that a billionaire can't indulge in the fantasy that money would make everything better. Billionaires can't look behind the curtain and see billionaires can look behind the curtain and see the wizard doesn't exist that more money is not going to make them happy and then they talk about a 2015 study of the ultra rich that found them to be internally deeply conflicted people that although they know money is not the key to happiness they can't stop counting it that's especially challenging for those who are self-made as opposed to those who inherit a fortune. For self-made billionaires, he said, the Klontz says, their entire self-image and all their self-esteem is wrapped up in the pursuit of money. Moreover, billionaires often feel isolated and find it difficult to trust or have authentic relationships that are not about money. On top of that, they have a hard time finding a sympathetic ear. It turns out that Klontz, uh, Brad and his uh, his father, excuse me, his father, Ted, founded something called the Financial Psychology Institute, which certifies financial behavior therapists. Uh, a, the, the, uh, they note that the entire field of financial therapy is still in its infancy, um, which uh, is a kind of an understatement, but I think it's, it's actually, given how much mental space money occupies for everyone, uh, I think this is really wonderful. Um, and here's where he's coming from, because the archaeology this is really interesting. Mr. Klontz became interested in learning more about his family's enormous anxiety around money uh, because of his mother uh, had so much anxiety around it that she put every cent she saved into low-interest-bearing certificates of deposit rather than the stock market. She said, I saw these patterns around money in families that I call dysfunctional pendulum swing. You either do exactly what your parents did or the exact opposite. And that's what I did. I did the riskiest things uh, you could do. Um, of course, the bottom line here is after all these years, uh, he says that... <laughs> There's not much that psychologically separates the super rich uh, from everyone else. He says, in many ways, I would say they're just like you and I if we had a billion dollars. Uh, 
Dif- yeah, I was waiting for it. Waiting for it. Different problems, but not a lack of problems. Mm. They often have a distorted feedback loop, meaning they're surrounded by yes men, yes women, yes children. Uh, people are drawn to them for their status and perceived power, so they tend to be surrounded by people who endorse their worldview and don't challenge their way of thinking. Very few people are honest with them. Um, you know, I and I, I so before I. You guys probably know this about me. Before I worked for Mockingbird, I w- was a youth minister in prep schools in the Northeast, w- w- usually among extremely wealthy kids most of the time. And um, what you found is the people that had a real chip on their shoulder about money could hated doing that work because they would much rather be in the inner city. Uh, for my background, I knew that people who grew up with a lot of money also grew up with a huge amount of suffering and alcoholism and distant fathers and, uh, you know, divorce and all this sort of pain and that, uh, they basically, uh, were shunned by the Christian miss- missiological field. And so it was, it was this, you know, there's also a lot of buffer to any kind of need or any kind of reaching out, any kind of humility. And we can talk about that till the cows come home. But I found that to be very powerful experience in terms of looking at what the gospel has to say to everyone. Because just as we say it's got to address the homeless guy and the alcoholic, it's got to also address the billionaire. And these people, if you really talk to them, they're sad and lonely. And, um, you know, we've mentioned it many times before, but the suicide rate is, it, it goes up the higher up you get on the socioeconomic ladder yes, because yes. people can no longer scapegoat their lack of material uh, wealth. And if anybody in this room is really wealthy and is feeling alone and wants someone to talk to, if there's a nice restaurant in town and you pick up the tab, I am so empathetic. I mean, I really am. I'm, I actually am pastor of a church. I mean, you can, you can cry on my shoulder or whatever. As long as you pick up the, Tab, you can cry on my shoulder. I mean, standing off right there. Six decent six figures is enough. Really. <laughs> um, you know, I think I, I David, I agree with a, a lot of what you said. I mean, I I think these pieces are so important for everyone to read and to know because often what we hear in the world is that you know people who have money don't have problems, which for me is one of the incredible things about ministry is that we get this insight into all kinds of different lives from all kinds of different, you know, economic situations. And you know that everybody has problems and you know that money isn't going to fix them and status isn't going to fix them. And, um, I mean, you know, the, what is it? The ground is all even at the foot of the cross. So, yeah, but that's, that's not just a trope that preachers bring out. Right. Like we, we grew up the, the, the church where I was a kid, where I was growing up. My, my dad doesn't talk about this that much. And cause it's, uh, little gauche, I guess, but it was on the same property that the Rockefellers owned. Wow. And Brooke Astor also lived there. So these are like the wealthiest people in America. And yet, um, I grew up in a household knowing that these people were also dealing with the same problems. Their and, wealth was huge. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. It's, Very, it, that was, that was a gift. Yes. That was a gift sure. that has continued to bear fruit in terms of compassion, at least. Yeah. And I think that when, too, like, when I see Pretty Woman, I mean, that's... Like I, I I love that movie. It's one of my favorite movies. And you know, the rich, the billionaire needs as much imputation as the whore. Mm. And so it's great. I love that because it's 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 the most it's the greatest imputation story. The 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 alienated billionaire treats the whore like a princess, and she becomes one. And mm. the and the and the whore <laughs> treats the alienated billionaire like a prince, and he becomes one. Mm. Yeah. And so. Well, this is a, a totally a sacred cow, though, in a very materialistic society that I think is. Um, it's hard to, row, you know, hard, hard to really have sympathy, as he says. But 
people should check out the article. I'm sure what CJ yeah, has to great. say about it is going to be great. Yeah. So why can't we change our minds when facts beat us right in the face? <laughs> <sighs> yes. Why facts don't change our minds. This is a longer piece in The New Yorker by Elizabeth Colbert. Is it Colbert? I don't It's She's not the, she's not Stephen's sister, but she's always writing for the New Yorker. And, uh, she's kind of reintroducing once again the vast swath of research that shows that human beings, um, act in all sorts of irrational ways that really that what, what's born out in reality is that people not only uh, act against their own self-interest constantly but that um, we have something called confirmation bias which as we, we've seen as we've developed into two different Americas you know that um, the tendency confirmation bias is simply the tendency as she writes to have to to embrace information that supports your beliefs and reject information that contradicts them that's on all sides of the equation it's a it's a universal uh, that um, that of course course no one actually wants to embrace this at uh, the confirmation bias but if reason is designed to generate sound judgments then it's hard to conceive of a more serious design flaw than confirmation bias so why do we have it and that's what the article tries to explore you know it's very easy it's it's we tend to be really good at spotting the problems in other people's arguments but not our own and she cites this really interesting study at yale where graduate students were asked to rate their understanding of everyday devices like toilets <laughs> and zippers and sin- cylinder locks. They were then asked to write detailed step-by-step explanations of how the device works to rate their understanding again. Apparently, the effort revealed to the students their own ignorance because their self-assessments dropped. Toilets, it turns out, are a lot more complicated than they appear. It's not just, you know, the thing goes down and, you know, anyway. Um, say, say more about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the social scientists call this effect the illusion of explanatory depth. And they see it everywhere, that people believe they know more than they actually do. And what allows us to persist in our belief is other people. In the case of my toilets, someone else designed it so that I can operate it easily. This is something human beings are very good at. We're, we're relying on another's expertise since we've already figured out how to hunt together, which is probably a key development in history. Um, so that it becomes hard to tell where our understanding ends and others begins. They go on to say that as a rule, strong feelings about issues do not emerge from deep understanding, uh, that our dependence on other minds reinforces the problem. So if your position on, say, the Affordable Care Act is baseless and I rely on it, then my opinion is also baseless. When I talk to Tom and he decides he agrees with me, his opinion is also baseless. So that now that there are three of us concur, we feel that much more smug about our views. That's like us on the podcast. It is. That's yeah, 100% yeah. I feel yeah. Yeah. Making each other yeah. dumb. Make, just making the podcast dumb, dumb and again. feeling good. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the the more strongly people feel about stuff is usually the more or angrier they get about it. It's usually the more likely they are to be wrong about mm-hmm. something. Oh um, my god, I'm doomed. Are you serious? <laughs> is that a, is that like a study? Not you, sir. <laughs> okay. Not clearly. <laughs> I mean, not you, sir. I mean, no. <laughs> She says uh, they. She continues to report research suggesting that people experience ex- suggests that. Uh, people experience genuine pleasure, a rush of dopamine when processing information that supports their beliefs. It feels good to stick to our guns, even if we are wrong. This is why so I, it was good that I said devil's advocate on the atonement thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, mean, I was not. I was checks and balances mm-hmm. here here on the air. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so providing people with accurate information doesn't seem to help. They simply discount it. Appealing to their emotions may work better, but doing so is obviously antithetical to the goal of promoting sound science. The challenge that remains, these scientists write at the end of their book, is to figure out how to address the tendencies that lead to false scientific belief. You know, and Elizabeth Colbert cannot re- help but uh, editorialize a bunch about uh, politics in, in a way sorting the very facts she's talking about in order to confirm her own opinions. So, I mean, she's, and I wondered if she was doing yeah, but that. That was so meta. You just like, <laughs> confirmation bias in article. Well, there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. And I sort of feel like, you know, you read the whole transcript of whatever it is, whatever press conference you're supposed to be looking at or committee meeting, and you know what's going to be reported on based on if it what if it's confirming you know the same thing these people report this part of it and these people report that part of it and it's 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 depressing um but it's also uh part and parcel of what i think it means to be a broken person living in a broken world no it's actually the opposite of depressing it releases dopamine <laughs> it's actually no. sarah are there any biases of yours i could confirm um, I just feel like this is like every fight that we have in marriage, like where you've made your stand and then you figure out that maybe you're wrong and you're like, I'm sticking with it. You know, like, I feel like that's what this study is just proving that like basically every argument we have. I read one time and I hate saying this and like in front of a room full of women. Um, but I read one time that when men and women fight, part of the reason that women get angrier is that we have more of a physiological response. So our heart rate goes up more and it stays up longer. So even after the fight is over, we're still mad and we still want to be right in a way that men don't. It's like a really fascinating. So anyway, men always want to, you're not you're not confirming my pre existing I mean, notions about fought, gender. So dynamics. like well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's um I'm not sure I, I can process I can this. hang I can hang with it for a while. But anyway, I, I don't know. I just it, it, I, I mean, good luck on trying to get people to not do this. Like this is intrinsic to who we are. Yeah, I mean it's like Jonathan Haidt says, right, that morality um binds and it blinds. So it binds people together, but it also blinds you to other points of view. Right. And so you kind of the, the group thing. And you guys know my saying. Like, if Augustine and Nietzsche agree on anything, it has to be true. And I think what both Augustine and Nietzsche understood about human, you know, theological anthropology is that we are creatures of the, of the will. It's not like we're oh, this is reasonable, so I'm going to get my will to desire. It's you know, our heart, the heart wants what it wants, and then we come up with rational. Like it was that in the Big Chill, Jeff Goldblum says a human being can get through a day without food and a day without sex, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Yep. There you go. Yep. Thanks. Thank God that we are not saved by reason. <laughs> mm. Thanks uh, for being here with us. Um, is our first, you are our best studio audience <laughs> to date. So give yourselves a round of applause for that. And uh, thank you so much for being with us as we tape this. Thanks, guys. I will talk to you all next week in separate states again. This is so fun to do this together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please cruise on over to iTunes. Give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson. It's edited and technically beautified by Dustin Coates. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.